Welcome to the Augustine Podcast, a conversation about the life, thought, and work of St. Augustine of Hippo. I'm your host, Joshua Blanchard. My guest today is Professor Charles T. Matthews. Dr. Matthews is a Carolyn M. Barber Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia, where he teaches religious ethics, theology, and philosophy of religion. He earned his BA in Theology from Georgetown University and his MA and PhD in Religion from the University of Chicago. From 2006 to 2010, Professor Matthews served as editor of the Journal of the American Academy of Religion. He was chair of the Committee on the Future of Christian Ethics for the Society of Christian Ethics. He's the inaugural director of the Virginia Center for the Institute of Religion, and he currently serves on the House of Bishops Theology Committee of the Episcopal Church. He is the author of Evil and the Augustinian Tradition, A Theology of Public Life, Understanding Religious Ethics, and The Republic of Grace, Augustinian Thoughts for Dark Times. He's also the author of numerous articles on religion with a distinct emphasis on Augustine. He has taught two courses for the Great Courses, one of which is on the City of God, the other on the problem of evil, with key attention paid to Augustine. Dr. Matthews, thank you so much for joining us. I know we met at Nato Bigger's Fetchrift last year, but it's good to actually have some time to chat with you. Nice to see you. Yeah. Well, I do want to know, I know, I feel like, more about your work than I know most Augustine scholars. Um, I came to your work real early through the teaching company. Uh, I had a, a job lifeguarding on the beach, so I'd just, like, listen to audiobooks all day and came to that. But give me the, the snapshot of what do you do? How do you define your work? What does Augustine look like in religious studies? Yeah, thank you. Well, it's nice to uh, it's nice to know that you're you know you're living inside someone else's ear canal in that way. I I too have I guess maybe during the pandemic, maybe a little bit before, I like totally discovered uh, podcasts and audiobooks and stuff. And so now, like on my more or less daily walks through the woods and stuff, I, uh, I'm always listening to things and it's like the best thing ever. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have uh, preoccupied you for some period of time. And uh, I'm, I'm, I hope other people find the same thing from me that I found from them. So that's, that's good news. Um, so my stuff, how would I characterize what I do? Is that what you say? Yeah. And where did, I, where did it get going? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's a couple different ironies uh, here. I mean, I grew up overseas. I actually grew up in Saudi Arabia. I was a what's called an Aramco brat. My father worked for the oil company in Saudi. Okay. And so uh, it was a complicatedly deeply American upbringing because engineers and the people around them are typically very much kind of blue-blooded American types. Um, but it also, in a very curious way, a kind of wildly cosmopolitan uh, lifestyle. So I had uh, friends from all around the world, from Indonesia, Nigeria, actually near Aberdeen. A lot of people whose families were from around the North Sea, right, work in the oil fields there. Yeah, I was going to um, say things go different. You could have grown up in Aberdeen. It's crazy. I mean, yeah, I, I, had, I had a friend in, so before we were in Saudi, we were actually in Alaska. And I had a friend in my second grade class in uh, Valdez, Alaska, who turned up in my fifth grade class in Utilia, Saudi Arabia. Um, and now I believe she actually lives uh, near Aberdeen, actually, Teresa, Teresa Dayton, um, Teresa Dayton Pankowitz, 
now. Uh, you know, Facebook allows you to reconnect with people. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's so funny how uh, it simultaneously was a kind of weirdly cloistered and also deeply kind of cosmopolitan uh, way of growing up. And it's it's unusual, it's strange, and it made me both appreciate the, the utter weirdness of life in the United States and um, and also some of the great some of the great uh, blessings uh, mm-hmm. of life in the United States. I, I still tell my family that when I when I go into like a local grocery store here, a big one, you know, a giant one, I still get this weird visceral thrill because like going to the grocery store was like the first thing we did when we came back on vacation and stuff like that. Um, but we, you know, we traveled all over the world. And so I came to a pretty early understanding of the complicated way the world is and how deeply uneven and uh, un, uh, ill-distributed uh, the goods of human life are. Um, and I think that really affected me in lots of ways, but I had thought I would go into kind of uh, foreign affairs and stuff like that. And to do that, I went to Georgetown University where I ended up in the School of Foreign Service, which is like their international relations school. Um, and the very first class I took was a required class in theology uh, with the professor who would eventually become my advisor, uh, Diane Yeager, who was an uh, important Christian ethicist in America. Um, and so it kind of knocked me off my feet. And in the first year I took other required courses, Georgetown's a Jesuit school, and that means there's a lot of attention to kind of the the whole human. And so we had English and philosophy requirements as well as theology requirements. And it came about that I was very clearly aware that the questions I was really interested in were not the kind of questions that people were asking in the foreign policy classes. They were the kinds of questions people were asking in the more kind of fundamental humanistic classes. Mm. So at the end of the first year, I had to tell my parents, um, that I was leaving the School of Foreign Service and transferring inside Georgetown to the College of Arts and Sciences. Um, and I, I, I joke that it would have been easier for them, and they were pretty open-minded people, but it would have been easier for them if I had come out as gay um, because they thought I was really losing a career. Yeah. Um, but ironically, I found, I mean, I, I definitely lost a career. Uh, I have friends in the Foreign Service who are still doing amazing things there, and it looks like a wonderful life. But I found my life, and uh, I've never, I've never for a moment regretted that I did the path I did. Uh, then I went and did a focused on theology at Georgetown. Got really excited about it. Went deep into it, and then went to grad school right away, which I now advise nobody to do. Um, yeah. Always take time off. You know, I don't know what you think about that, but I, I always think that it's good for people to take a couple years and you know, go be a tap dancer or a baker or something like that. Something to appreciate how unusual even the time rhythms are of the academy and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I took two years off, one yeah. to, to move to China, and uh, oh, nice. I taught PE and philosophy, the classic combination, uh, and then a year teaching English. And that was really helpful, both because I got out of undergrad and I thought, okay, I, I loved my you know, English lit professor, and I thought maybe I'd... I'd be interested in doing English. Maybe I'd be interested in doing philosophy. And I taught English for a year and quickly realized I'm a terrible English teacher. Um, just taught philosophy through English. Uh, but that wasn't for me. But yeah, absolutely. And I also think school is just so unscheduled. It's so yeah. flexible that a little bit of time working, I think a nine to five or for a school teacher, a seven to three job 
has helped a lot in sort of staying in those rhythms. But I, I definitely agree to yeah, get out, travel, do something dumb or purposeful or neither. I also worked at a coffee shop in those two years. And that was fun for like the first month. Yeah. My maybe one of my favorite jobs ever was working at a, a a toy assembly factory. Actually, I was at the end of the line stacking boxes, but um, and I only did it for a summer or so for like three months. But it was the most uh, I, I learned the most about myself in those three months than I've learned in any similar period of time. Um, yeah, and you get to you know you 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 shock yourself by getting out of your usual routines or whatever, and you begin to appreciate how valuable those usual routines are, um, and then you can appreciate them better when you go back to them. Yeah, if you if you go back to them. Right. Anyway, so I started in theology. At, I mean, I went I went to theology at Georgetown. I really thought I was going to do this. Um, and the irony of my life is that when I was coming out of grad school, the job that was available, one of the jobs that was available, was a job at UVA, um, and it was a, a public university. And, you know, I had very little intuition about what UVA was. Um, I knew it was a public school. Uh, I knew it had a relation to Jefferson and stuff. Um, but it, it turns out to have been a really good uh, place for me, ironically also, because uh, coming out with a degree in theology, my PhD in, from Chicago was not in ethics. It was in the theology track. Um, it's interesting to be at a place like UVA, which is so resolutely in some ways, well, in some ways, resolutely um, Jeffersonian and committed to the common good of the Commonwealth. Yeah. Um, and that means for us that there's a complicated relationship to the teaching of theology. It's not in the way that it is in a lot of places in the States where it's kind of verboten. Um, we're not like that at all. Uh, we're lucky that in the early 70s, actually, a number of uh, early hires in my department were of uh, pretty confessional Buddhists and uh, Jewish thinkers and also uh, uh, Islamic thinkers. Uh, and because those thinkers manifested ways of unapologetically and forthrightly just expositing views from their traditions in ways that were completely self-critical um, or at least roughly self-critical, um, it meant that it gave people a wider sense of what you can do in religious studies. Yeah. Um, and so by the time I came, one of my colleagues was Gene Rogers, who's an amazing theologian. Um, another was Robert Wilkin, who's an mm. amazing church historian. Um, David, uh, David Hart, David Bentley Hart, was teaching on the faculty. He had just finished his PhD with us. Um, and then a couple years later, we hired John Milbank. Uh, and, you know, it's it's interesting to think about those kinds of people as at Mr. Jefferson's university, you know, the guy yeah. who coined the, the wall of separation. But I don't think we've ever, as far as I know, ever had any conflicts around um, uh, any kind of argument from a student that people are doing something which is inappropriately um, evangelizing in, in any way. Uh, because everybody teaches the stuff they teach in such a way that they realize the the human complexity of all the materials. Um, and so there's there's never any uh, attempt to say, my construal of this tradition, uh, the one I'm presenting you with, is obviously the right one. And if you disagree with it, you're going to, you know, be expelled into the outer darkness or something like that. Uh, now, if you don't do the reading, you will be expelled into the outer darkness. But that's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's weird. I went to the I went from politics 
at early Georgetown to theology, then back to um, back ironically to public service. My yeah. entire professional career, I have been um, a public employee of the state of Virginia. Man, that is crazy. Um, and perhaps ironically, a lot of your work has come back to political thought, though in a very theological stream. There's still that bent to it. Yeah, my first book on evil, you know, everyone has these kind of stories about why we, we do these things. I grew up with um, pretty thoughtful parents and who had had a lot of uh, rough stuff. My dad was a veteran of the Korean War and stuff. Um, and so philosophical discussions were always a topic in our in our in our world. And actually, when I was 12 um, on a trip to Germany, my father uh, took me to Dachau uh, to go see the concentration oh. camp right outside of Munich, um, which was sounds weird to do. But actually, now that I have a 14 year old son, I wish I could do that with him. And maybe we will. Um, but it was uh, an, imp an impressive and um, important thing for me to think about these things in our in our world. And it, it helped. Uh, it helped to give me a picture with, you know, our travel around and everything of some of the challenges we face. So my yeah. first work was really about evil yeah. and about Augustinians thought about evil. Did that come out of your dissertation at Chicago? Yeah, yeah. So I was working on that in the 90s and it was basically in between what I would say is, uh, well, what I actually, in, in the Republic of Grace, I talk about this, is that weird period that I came to adulthood in um, between 11-9 and 9-11, between the, the fall of the Berlin Wall on November 9th, 1989, yeah. and the fall of the Twin Towers on 9-11. And it's hard to get back to that period, but the argument that I was trying to make seemed, at least to my maybe paranoid mind, um, hard for people to wrap their minds around that older traditions of thinking about evil might actually have something to uh, educate us about in this mm -hmm. world. There was a cheap and easy reading, a bad reading, by the way, of Francis Fukuyama's The End of History that said that, you know, basically after the fall of the wall, there was not going to be any history. There's not going to be any excitement. There was nothing was going to be as, as meaningful. Um, and Fukuyama didn't quite mean that um, and that things were going to be great. Uh, he definitely didn't mean that. Uh, but in that in that mindset, to to write a lot about evil seemed really weird and countercultural, um, mm. and so I spent a lot of time. It felt like rowing upstream. Ironically, the end of that book, not the conclusion per se, but the basic thrust of the book was to say that for Augustinians, in some sense, evil tries to cut us off from one another, isolate us, isolate us even from ourselves. Um, and convince us that the right response to uh, these things is always flight, is always an escape and an evasion into some other form of nothingness, effectively. And that the right diagnosis, the right response to these challenges of evil is always to kind of lash yourself ever more firmly to the community, to the common good, um, to try to not give up on the world. This is Arendt's uh, yeah. reading which in some ways she wanted to argue is a counter Augustinian reading, but I also think is in some ways deeply Augustinian, this idea of Amur Mundi. Um, and so 
that book ended in a weird way by saying um, the dissertation and then the book ended in a weird way by saying that um, the right response to evil is to love the world all the more vigorously um, and to love your fellow humans all the more vigorously as best you can. And that flowed naturally, I thought, into thinking about what it means to love the world and the neighbor vigorously in terms of these kinds of political formations that we all inhabit these days. Mm, um, yeah. And that leads into the political theology, public theology stuff. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Could you, if I'm remembering right, it's Arndt and Niebuhr in that book? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. It's been a long, yeah. long time. Uh, yeah, so very, I mean, off the bat, very political orientations to this, you know, it's not a, a deep ontology of evil as much as it is evil where we are today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I believe deeply in the Bob Dylan line, we live in a political world. Um, and I do think that uh, in a weird way, our world is getting ever more political in the sense that the decisions we make at the policy level in terms of nations and stuff like that, and also corporations and other large human formations, uh, are more impactful, uh, if I can use that terrible word, uh, of our lives than many, many other forces are. 500 years ago, it was quite possible for many people uh, to only very obliquely experience politics. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in our world today, it's very hard to live that way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah tell me, I feel like in a lot of your work, you focus on these three sort of eras of the the World War II to Berlin Wall, the in-between period, and then the post-9-11. Um, how do you sort of characterize each of those? How do, how do they shape your thinking? Because those come up a lot. Yeah, I've been always very inspired, influenced and inspired. One of my teachers was Jean Elstein okay. um, at Chicago, and she was quite a remarkable person. That situates thing, things a little bit. Yeah. yeah, she's. I mean, she she ended up moving in a much more kind of uh, right wing direction in some ways in the Bush administration, yeah. which I disagreed with, but I totally respect her. I, I I'm I'm, but but um, her basic intuitions were always to be skeptical of whatever she thought was a dominant consensus, um, and uh, I mean, in some ways that's a little like uh, Nigel. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> Nigel can be a little cranky too, yeah. um, but I I. I I, I gravitate to thinkers like that just in the sense that I I like people who are going to put pressure on my common assumptions. And so in different ways, there are lots of people who do that these days. And I'm, I'm, I try to I try to be open to that, um, even if I disagree with them on things. But through her, but also in my own stuff, I had always had a big love of poetry. Um, I found a number of Eastern European intellectuals who I found incredibly inspiring. So people like uh, George Herbert and uh, Vachov Havel, um, Vyslava Shimborska, uh, Joseph Brodsky from Russia. Um, and reading them gave me a picture of what humans could do under conditions of terror and uh, what Havel calls the post-totalitarian state kind of a desultory, almost like a Seinfeld-esque um, post-totalitarian state yeah. where everyone, nobody actually believes in what they're doing, but everyone does it anyway. Um, so I, that was an influential thing for me. And thinking about them and thinking about the pressures they were under, that was a community of people who I found very inspiring 
that I try to learn from. In the American world, those those decades were really important because they did produce people like Niebuhr and uh, in a different way, not produce, but have a place for someone like Arendt. And the choices they made are very important and influential for our world still. Um, unless I'm, I'm, I haven't read it yet, but I know Sam Moyne has a new book about the the Cold War liberals, and I think he, I think he's probably poo-pooing them as people who are really uh, problematic. I tend to think that they had more uh, going for them than people today give them credit for. Especially a figure I will always have time, uh, not just for Arendt and Niebuhr, but a, a figure like Lionel Trilling, who I find enormously impressive. Um, as a as a thinker and as a writer, as someone who is grappling with these questions in some important way. Yeah. Um, and then since then, it's just I mean, you know, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, it's basically just been my life. Uh, so it it feels like we. Uh, I wish I wish we didn't live in quite so eventful times. Looking back on it, the '90s were in many ways pretty awesome. Um, one of my favorite, he died a few years ago, but near contemporary poets is a guy, um, Adam Zagievsky, who actually is, his family was from Lvov, but it was in Poland then, so it's now in the Ukraine. But he has a wonderful line in an essay called In Defense of Ardor. He has a line where he says, um, we too will be legends one day for the people who come after us. And it's weird to think about how our decisions, our actions, our behaviors in our, our own time. Um, history is merciless and the mistakes we've made um, will be visible for people 100, 200, 1,000 years from now. Uh, and I, I, I think about that a lot. Uh, not just the mistakes, so there's possibilities for decency, um, but I, I, I think that we, we sometimes imagine that history is what happened in the past and that no one will remember what happens with us because we don't do anything important. Uh, and I think that's a mistake. Yeah, I think that's fair. I was talking to my wife just last night about COVID and said, how are we all just like back to normal? Like what in the world just happened between Trump and COVID and like the past five years have been just a mess and even even recent things like Afghanistan and Ukraine like what is going on and we're just sort of carrying on with life and I know there are, are thoughtful responses to all of those things um, I've got friends here at Aberdeen writing on January 6th or on COVID and but at the same time there are times where it feels like I think a lot of historical events are happening around me but I'm just going to work today well, that's your job, though. I mean, I think yeah. I said this the first morning of the Ukraine war to my undergrads. I was teaching a, a business ethics class, actually. And uh, we had uh, what well, it was the it was the 25th. Actually, it was the first day of our class after the war had started. We had been talking about what was likely to happen. Um, okay. But we came in and. Um, I said to them, uh, understand that this is not your war. Your war is coming maybe in 20 years. Um, that's the war when you'll be in your late 30s, early 40s, and a fully weight-bearing member of the social order who is attempting to try to do the right thing. 
your job right now in college is definitely to be a citizen and to act in whatever ways you need to do that, but also to prepare yourself for that moment a couple of decades from now when we will need you to be at your best. Um, and that's a weird thought. Uh, and I know some people will find that outrageous. How dare you say this is not their war? This is uh, it's, it's definitely the war for the young Ukrainians. Absolutely. I, I get all that. But it's important for people to think about the work they do as necessary, even if now it feels at some distance from what has to happen later. Yeah. Um, there's always going to be more suffering. And there's always going to be more evil. Um, and opportunities for decency and heroism will provide themselves uh, as time goes on. No, I I think that's right. I find that very comforting, myself being young, uh, and more so myself writing on Augustine, which <laughs> got nothing new or interesting to say on Augustine by and large, but it's the best PhD I could think of for a preparation for, you know, a career or future things to come. Got yeah. not much to do right now. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. The other the other line of Augustine's that I love on this is, you know, that the sermon line about um, uh, terrible times, horrible times, people say uh, uh, these are hard times, but we are the times, um, you know, such as we are. So shall the times be. Um, I love that line. Yeah, uh, we are the times. Uh, it's not like it's some other Manichaean weather front washing over us. You know, it's it's what we are. That's right. Yeah, well, tell me, um, why are you still working with Augustine? So, well, first of all, why did you get to Augustine at Chicago? Was it just because Niebuhr and Arndt were products of Chicago, or was there a, a drive that brought you to Augustine? I had read a little Augustine before. My main teacher is a, 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 a Diane Yeager, this Professor Yeager at right. Georgetown, was a a student of not a not a direct student, but a uh, a scholar of H. Richard Niebuhr, and um, what she had noted. I didn't discover this until much later when I was in grad school, and I uh, went and sleuthed around and found uh, a copy of her dissertation. Actually, um, but she had written on what she called the Augustinianism of H. Richard Niebuhr, and in all of her classes, I realized that she was always dropping these little hints about in books that we read that Augustine was this really deep thinker who you could pay attention to. Um, and so I think to some degree, I just absorbed this kind of from her. I, I caught the virus uh, from her about this. I also think it's the case that in, in that time, Augustine wasn't as popular a figure as he came later, I think after 9-11, things changed. I think um, when Jim Wetzel was writing Augustine and the Limit to Virtue, and I was doing stuff on Augustine, and Eric uh, Gregory was doing stuff, um, and Oliver O'Donovan had been uh, a big leader in this, and Rowan Williams had been uh, yeah. a big figure in this. Um, but like Carol Harrison stuff hadn't, had like I think one book had come out at this point, maybe. Um, and the, in my world of kind of theology and um, ethics, Aquinas was a much more popular figure. It was 
kind of the height of the of the McIntyre fever. Um, okay. And then someone like Hauerwas was always high on Aquinas, and the Yale people were high on Aquinas. So he was a he was a much more popular person to work on. Um, but the you know I I think I I just grooved with not only Augustine's mood but the way he he always answers questions often indirectly maybe like I'm doing now. <laughs> uh, he answers by stepping back and and trying to like trouble the assumptions or whatever that you know you you bring him. Right. And he shows you that the assumptions are, in some degree, not quite what you what you think they should be. And then I start. I was interested in philosophy, and I, you know, I realized that in, in very important ways, uh, the the main forms of philosophical discontent with philosophy that had so energized 20th century philosophy that that is Heidegger and Wittgenstein, both took important inspiration and provocation from Augustine. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. So I wanted to figure out what was going on there. My undergraduate thesis was on Hauerwas and Wittgenstein, actually. Um, and uh, I, 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 I used that to kind of kind of think through theological method in a way yeah. for me at that point as a 21 year old or whatever. Um, it's not a bad start. No, it was good. It was good. And, you know, Augustine is, he's so interesting because Aquinas, who I have come to deeply love, well, I've come to deeply respect and admire, um, and maybe a little bit love, uh, Aquinas, a lot of his writing is very structured towards solving a problem or uh, helping you to think more clearly about a problem. Right. Um, Augustine is often a much more moody writer. Yeah. And he, he often wants to produce in you um, more affect than answers, <laughs> not just in his sermons. And I think that's an interesting, different strategy. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I think that's right. And I think it has kept, this is a, a broad statement, but I think by and large, especially in analytic philosophy, Aquinas is still the the yes. favorite out of the two of them. As much as I'd love to change that, analytic philosophy is still often Aquinas or Thomistic Augustine. Do you, do you know the, the contrast between, uh, Heidegger's contrast between um, Forhanden and Suhanden, uh, present at hand and ready at hand? Yeah. Um, yeah, so like Aquinas is very, uh, is very Suhanden. Um, he's, he's, he's available, he's disposable. Uh, Augustine, I think they look at it and they're like, what, what the hell can I do with this? Um, so. Yeah, more and more. I have found what you're saying to be correct, perhaps more than I'd like, that there are very few answers and a lot of, yeah, not just in the sermons, but in the, you know, the mature treatises, just a lot of unsettling rhetoric, um, more, I think, than I I was prepared for coming into the PhD. But yeah, almost more, more Socratic, I think, than we give him credit for often. Yeah, I mean, one of the big discussions is about whether or not Augustine is the person who killed the ancient dialogue. Um, and there's a whole series of scholars who argue about why it is that, you know, Augustine does start off writing dialogue right. early on, um, and then they become monologues, you know, the soliloquies. Um, and it's interesting what is going on there. What does that genre change signify for him? Um, but I do think that there's something dialogical about his imagination throughout. 
um, he may change genres, but the basic um, orientation um, is very uh, interested in changing people's hearts. I mean, as you know, that Augustine is not loaded with many, many tool belts of arguments. Um, but I don't think he is finally convinced that argument is going to save anybody. Yeah. Um, and so it's in some ways it's more about seeing and and seeing the right things and being affected by them. For sure. Yeah. Well, tell me, how have you found? Well, let me back up. You, you gave me a I think you gave me an answer to why you came to Augustine. What has made you sort of stick with Augustine from from the dissertation to the Republic of Grace to I know you're working on a book now on the yeah. future of political theology. Yeah. Are we done with Augustine? It's not future. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean, unsurprisingly, I'm not. But that's because, you know, like you get an idea and you keep chewing it over for your life. And so you kind of. You know, in, in in good trauma therapy, trauma theory accounts, you know, you you continually return to the scene of the trauma in some way, um, and you know, the trauma is not Augustine. He's kind of the bandaid I use to kind of mm. deal with the trauma, or he's maybe the way that I I continue to pick away the scab and reopen the wound or something. Um, but I, I mean, the easiest answer and the the, the of course, the funniest one is that I haven't finished reading Augustine because <laughs> nobody finishes reading Augustine. He just he wrote like, you know, we think was it five million words in Latin. So that's a lot of words um, and that we have. Uh, and so I keep that I we keep know of, that we have. Yeah, exactly. We probably have more in a drawer somewhere. It's amazing to think about. And it's probably true. I mean, in, in our lifetimes, there are many, many tragedies to the Syrian civil war and also to the Balkan Wars, but almost certainly some of the losses of um, ancient texts, uh, Christian and otherwise, and maybe some Augustine ones in those two in those two combats are among the greatest of evils. Yeah. Um, not not the greatest, but they are true evils, and it's a terrible thing. Um, but yeah, no, I think he's he's interesting. He's always, to my mind, ever new. Um, and the more you read him, the more you discover layers that you didn't think were there. Um, and so, and to be honest, the other thing is, and here's a little polemic about our field. I actually think there are two or three different bodies of scholarship on Augustine or materially really central to understanding Augustine and that most of us don't pay much attention to them. So, you know, there's the kind of traditional, more or less what we would call patristic stuff, mm -hmm. which is very text-centric and coming in a kind of relatively teleological way from the second century or so to the yeah. Middle Ages. But then there's kind of the late antique and historian's approach, which um, does a lot more with cultural history and much more social history and actually gets a little more dirt under the fingernails. So there's some amazing, amazing stuff there. Um, and then there's uh, classics, which sees a figure like Augustine uh, not really as a, a, a not as most crucially a an, an early medieval Christian writer, right? But as an example of the kind of achievement that a kind of late Latin humanistic education could get you. Hmm. Um, and those are just three. And then there's other, you know, there's historiography of world history and stuff like that. And 
so as I've gone through and learned more about these other modes of understanding, um, it has importantly resituated things in Augustine that I had not uh, fully appreciated. Um, so along with the political theology book, I'm also doing a, a book out of the, um, related to the great courses uh, ones, uh, lectures on the city of God. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned this when we, when I saw you last year, that you're working yeah. on slowly turning that into a book. Yeah, well, it's not going to be the lectures because the, um, I, I don't want to do a commentary or anything like that. That would be a two. Okay. It's going to be more, um, a, a, hopefully a series of reflections and provocations on what the book is trying to do for us. But one important thing that I think we haven't really thought through, just as an example of what I'm talking about here, is that, um, you know, Augustine wrote that book and much of his work for um, the written stuff, not necessarily the, the preached sermons, although they too are, are like this, but the, definitely the written stuff. Much of it was written for um, illiterate, a, a literate, elite, lay, Roman civic audience, like an audience of people who conceive themselves as citizens. Mm -hmm. um, and yet for the next thousand years, he was overwhelmingly read by um, uh, religiously professed celibate men who lived in um, with, with very little literary background or understanding of the classical traditions out of which he was speaking, who lived in communities not dedicated to the flourishing of the city in the world, but anticipating the city that was coming. Yeah. Um, and to think about what that means, that he wrote this for one kind of audience, and yet for a thousand years, it was read by another kind of audience, um, is a really interesting thing to think about. Yeah. So that will sort of, is one of the ideas that will come out of this new study. Yeah. Yeah. And like there's stuff like I didn't know for the thing I did at the at the Nigel conference on uh, on judgment and law. Um, I did not know until I started doing research on this. Right. That the Greeks and the Romans had very different conceptions of law and yeah. how it operates. Um, and so it's 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 very interesting that we think, oh, the ancient people with their pillars, they all fought the same way. Um, in fact, there's a great quote from Cicero where he says, um, legal scholarship is for the Romans what philosophy was for the Greeks, um, which is an interesting kind of contrast between them. So, you know, there's 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 stuff there that will help us complexify our understanding of what's going on. Yes, absolutely. I sit across the room from a New Testament scholar and probably once a week I'll say something and he's like, well, no, there's a, there's a big difference between, you know, law in, in the Roman and Greek worlds. Can I just write my paper? He's like, no, no, no. You're assuming all of these wrong things. Uh, I, it's been great to hang out with people who know those things, and to try to try to keep up with them, or yeah. try to at least teach some of the some of the crumbs that fall from their table. Yes. Yeah, I've been very fortunate to be at Aberdeen. I was a little nervous because Aberdeen is not the center of Augustine studies in the world. It's a, a school that does a lot of Bart and Bonhoeffer, modern theology, ethics, and so. I came because I was interested in political theology and ethics and that sort of thing. But it's been very nice to sort of get different streams uh, from different places. So I'm I'm working with two supervisors who are very much in that patristics 
line with Lewis Ayers and John Baer, but yeah. the ethos of Aberdeen is a lot more practical. Um, there's some Hauerwas in the air still from his time here. So it's a, a mixed bag, but it's been, yeah, stretching and very good to see more than one little stream. I think that's the best way to do it, you know, to always be the kind of person not at the center of the conversation, but on the edge. And you, you know, your learning curve is a little steeper in that way, but you're always, um, you, you're always learning more, more quickly. Yeah. That's been my experience so far. So, yeah. Well, it seems like some of what I get from you is definitely an attachment to Augustine for his, his evil or sort of realism for the love of the earth, despite a city to come. How have you sort of understood Augustinian ethics um, or brought Augustine into your ethics? I know a little bit more about your political theology and that sort of thing, but yeah, how do you sort of conceive of doing ethics with an eye to those very realistic thoughts? I would say one thing about the the evil and stuff. Um, there's a really deep way in which Augustine is a profoundly incarnational and Christological thinker. Yeah. And that hasn't come out as fully work on Augustine yet because he never wrote a treatise on Christ. So there's no kind of nice genre place on which to hang a kind of yeah. exegesis of Augustine's Christology. But there's a shout out I'll give you to uh, a, a, one of our students from UVA who's publishing a book this fall on Augustine's Christology. Seriously. Um, and his name is Joe Lino. Yeah, it's coming out with Cambridge, I think, in October. Okay. Um, and I think it's called Completing Christ. Um, but it's about the totus Christus, the, the church, as the way that God is affected by the world in some way. Um, but without moving in kind of process directions and stuff. But it's a very interesting. Um, it's, a, it's a really, I think it's quite a, quite a genius work. But it's and what did you say impressive. his last name was? Lino? Lino, L-E-N-O-W. Okay. I think it's under the might be yeah, the completing Christ, I think. That's but great. It's with Cambridge. It's coming out with Cambridge. Um I had a friend text me this week and say, I'm doing a paper on Augustine's Christology. Where do I start? And I said, I have no idea. I have very intentionally not gotten into that. So always, you, you can just save me some homework. Them. Yeah, but you can always recommend to them either the the Augustine of Lexicon for yeah. you know Christ, but also the uh, Augustine through the Ages encyclopedia. And that's what I there'll did. Be, yeah, there'll be some leads there to to go on for uh, sure. But yeah, um, but with ethics and politics, in a way, unsurprisingly. Um, and here I'll go back to these terrible perennialist habits that I still that I still hold, even though I said Rome and Greece are very different. Um, you know the way that uh, Aristotle says, was it at the end of the um, at the end of the Ethics? He says like that the the person who wants a good life has to um, has to think also about politics, um, or is it at the end of the Politics where he says the right order? No, it's got to be the end of the Ethics. He says the the Ethics. It makes sense. You have to go and understand politics then. Yeah. So there's a continuity of flourishing between the social and the individual in that way. And um, there's a continuity of grieving as well and mourning, which I think is uh, maybe more Augustine's vibe uh, than direct flourishing. Um, and so ethics and politics are distinct, but not radically separate for me. Um, and so a figure like the judge in City of God 196 is, uh, I think, actually a really important um, 
as it were, kind of synecdoche of the whole point of life in the world for Augustine. Um, I, I read what happens in that little moment um, as Augustine's kind of climactic dramatic answer to the Roman, uh, some of his Roman readers who were questioning whether or not Christianity um, right, could, uh, uh, could, could instill the morals of Republican citizenship. There's a famous letter um, that he, he, he has uh, about Lucianus, but it's from actually Marcellinus um, about this. And so I feel like in some ways that book 19 and um, a few of those moments, especially 19.6, are really crucial moments for thinking through what it means to be a Christian in the world and caring for the world. What does that care look like? Um, and I think that's the core of ethics for him is what is the appropriate mode of caring for the world? Yeah. Um, for creation, for God's creation as God's creation. Um, and, you know, that gets into all sorts of complications is uh, O'Donovan's fantastic, uh, uh, in many ways, I think, still unsurpassed by other scholars of Augustine, his early stuff on the problem of self-love. Yeah. Um, and then the question of whether or not Augustine's insistence that things are so much more vigorously objects of God's agency than they are of our own, um, that in some ways it, it, you know, this is the Arentian worry about Augustine, that it, it, it takes the air out of the significance of the world, um, which is in some ways what Volusianus was asking Augustine through Marcellinus too. Um, and I think, I think that's the the question of what it means to care for things in a non-idolatrous manner. That I think is for Augustine a really crucial fact. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then I would say that Augustine's ethics has attention to um, uh, uh, principles and maxims, um, but it is much more broadly and deeply, I think, a dispositional ethics, much more right. much more centrally and finally, a dispositional ethics. Um, that's not to try to be morally evasive or relativistic. Um, he, I do think he has absolutes that he forbids. Um, I, I don't think he's a, um, a, a nihilist realist in that sense, but um, I do think he has a much richer sense of the way that there's always collateral damage to almost any ethical decision you take. Yeah. And you should not look away from that. And there's always some limitations to ethical judgments. Absolutely. I mean, especially, he, he had just so many epistemic hurdles to get through to questions of, of what's good or right or just. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, I think he, he really does worry a lot about um, putting people in positions where they feel like they have been enabled to make a final and kind of quasi-apocalyptic judgment about anything. Right. Um, you know, there's, there's in, in one of the, <laughs> um, one of the sermons, I think, um, on John, not the letter one John, but on the gospel, I think there's somewhere where he says, you know, in a way, um, Judas uh, is uh, the first member of the church. Uh, because Judas is the one that Jesus first gives communion to. Yeah. Um, and 
he takes from that the idea that the really fundamental thing that you have to uh, fight against is despair. And despair is a um, decisively formed judgment in the heart, uh, maybe against yourself. Mm. So, yeah, judgment is a is a big thing, especially for someone like him who, you know, for what, three decades or so um, undertook uh, um, with real regularity uh, the the Episcopal court right the episcopal hearings so we just watched judge judy or anything like that but he actually had to live it yeah he got to see the despair well yeah he got to see all the the bullshit yeah you know two or three hours a day for multiple days a week just dealing with people's trivia one of my favorite lines on that is by a um andre malraux the french writer in Mm -hmm. his memoir he he, he starts off by saying, uh, once a long time ago, I asked a priest, an old priest I knew, I said, you've, you've been a priest hearing confessions for 60 years. You know, what have you learned from, from humanity? And the priest said, nothing. No, wait, one thing. There are no grown-ups. Um, and I feel like Augustine got that revelation too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And, well, here's a hoping Judge Judy puts out a book on political theology. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. Again, let me, um, we should wrap up. Let me ask, what are you working on now? You mentioned some sort of book on the city of God. Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing this. I'm trying to finish this stupid political theology book, uh, which is way too long now, but um, I I keep hoping I will have the time to cut it down and make it digestible. Um, But it's uh, maybe by the end of this year, I'll have it in a, in some legible form that I can inflict it on, on people. Um, and then I'm also doing this work on the city. I've I've just I've kind of decided that there isn't uh it's a little self-flattering, but there isn't a single text out there um that's a kind of guide to the city that is not simply uh a guide to kind of whacking your way through the thickets of the text itself, but asks some of the larger theoretical questions. There are um some really good um O'Daly and others like that are yeah. very text focused. Then there are some actually really good um, books and pieces that are on individual pieces on parts of the city, um, but nothing that tries to see, you know, as it were, the symphony as a whole. Um, and that's what I'm that's what I'm, I'm trying to do. It's not necessarily a wise idea. No, that's a, <laughs> it's, it's so big, it's a big but it's um, it's been fun. Yeah. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, other than the city of God, uh, what work of Augustine's do you feel like we should be paying more attention to? Where do you think there's work to do in Augustinian studies? I mean, I think there's a lot of work to do. I mean, this whole idea of the new canon has come and is, I think, doing incredibly valuable work on reminding us of the broader picture of what Augustine is doing. I think in some ways it would help us to look more carefully at um, how Augustine was um, repackaged uh, almost right upon his death for later uh, for later people. Um, and so I think like uh, looking more at uh, Pisidius, uh looking at um the prosper people mm. who 
created these kinds of, uh, you know, collections of sayings or whatever, uh, which kind of turned Augustine into a useful handbook. Again, ma made him in some ways forehanded, uh, 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 or no, zuhanded. So it made him yeah. um, ready at hand for later thinkers. Um, they, they're not, it's not exactly looking at Augustine, but looking at the people who kind of um, turned Augustine into Augustine, scare quotes, yeah. of the Middle Ages. The text of Augustine's that I'm, I'm really interested in and I don't know what to do with yet, but I think is a really interesting and curious text actually, is um, the, the Retractationes. Mm. Uh, it's gotta be one of the weirdest things for anybody to write. Um, and it means much more than it says directly. And I'm, I'm thinking about that a lot these days. I've been reading stuff by, um, especially maybe um, Mark Vesey, who's a scholar out in Vancouver who does really amazing yeah. stuff on uh, kind of late Latin literature in general. He's been dropping hints about this, about the kind of the questions of people making uh, Kind of meta texts and stuff, and 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 the Retractatione seems a really big, interesting meta text. Huh. Like another way to read Augustine is to read him as a pedagogical theorist, right? So that from early on, he's always telling you, he's not only trying to teach you, he's also trying to teach you about how to learn, yeah, and also about how to teach. So, and he's and probably there's nobody in the ancient world, nobody Christian or otherwise, who has written quite so much on pedagogy as Augustine. You know, if you think about De Doctrina. You think about what well, De Magistro, um, the Enchiridion, uh, the Catechizandus Rudibus, you have a series of explicit texts. And then there's and always, teach. almost all of his texts, even in his sermons, where he'll break frame and say, now I've been saying this, but I don't want you to take it this way. I want you to Absolutely. take it this way. So Augustine, as someone who is maybe over anxious about teaching um, and learning, that's another Augustine that would be really interesting. Yeah. To think. yeah. I've just spoken to a few people who study or who have put out works on catechesis. Um, and it's been fascinating. Um, this is not my project, but following up on catechesis and rhetoric and what in the world is going on behind the scenes has been a lot of fun. So yeah, I'd like to see more on, on pedagogy. Um, that sort of fits in between those two. That's really interesting. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, last, last question, if you could recommend a recent work that you've seen come out. Um, Jolino doesn't count because it's not out. So you got to give me something else. <laughs> um, where is that? I actually just was. Oh, it's somewhere around here. It's a really interesting book. Uh, she's right here. Hold on a minute. Okay, you're fine. It's a couple of years old now, but it's still worthwhile. Um, it's David Dusenberry's The Innocence of Pontius Pilate. Okay. Um, How the Roman Trial of Jesus Shaped History. It's a completely fascinating um, and curious book. Um, Dusenberry is trained as a kind of patristics guy. He wrote on Nemesius. But um, this is about the question of the degree to which later thinkers thought about the legality of Jesus's execution, right? Was Pontius Pilate like guilty of something like a murder or was everything alles in ordnung? 
Um, and what are the implications of that? And I think that's a really interesting question about, um, you know, are, are the structures of the world to be trusted or are they reliably the kinds of things that if we use them appropriately, will end up in horrible moments? Yeah. Um, and I remember the great, this one of my favorite uh, liner notes of all times from the Talking Heads, the band from the, the 80s, their live album, Stop Making Sense. They had this incredible, in their liner notes, they say, nuclear weapons can destroy all life on Earth if used properly. Um, and I, I love the Orwellian way in which properly turns out to mean not what we think it means. Not right at all, uh, yeah. And in a way, that it feels like to me like mm -hmm. that Susan Berry is exploring that in this in this book. So that's uh, that's one thing I would I would definitely uh, recommend. Yeah, yeah. This is completely unrelated, uh, but I just I know you are pretty keen on American politics, and I feel like it is a very similar thing right now. Like, do we arrest every public figure who's doing evil things? <laughs> or, do, or do we ignore every public figure who's doing e evil things? Like, yeah, the up and up yeah. seems like a uh, a bad idea if used properly, and letting corruption go seems like a bad idea. Everybody is again like we're we're in the middle of history. There's no escape from it for us, and um, yeah, we we're hopefully people are doing doing their best. Yeah, they're not. <laughs> but hopefully i'm not at least well yeah no we're none of us are yeah it's all about what are the ways in which you are going to suck worse and which ways are you going to suck less bad yeah good great well thank you for your time dr matthews uh i really enjoyed this hopefully i'll see you in person again in, in some period whether it's in the southeast or uh over on this let side me know things. if you ever yeah if you're ever coming through our, our neighborhood and uh, hopefully i'll see you at some big conference somewhere elsewhere. Next summer, Villanova will be having its uh, patristics conference. Um, and I'll be giving a talk there. Um, okay. So that'll be a fun one. That's in late July or early August. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think that's, uh, as far as I know, that's the next big thing for me on the on the calendar in terms of, Great. In terms of like Augustine conferences. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Depending on whether uh, I move back or not, I hope to go to that. But we're moving sometime yeah. in July and August. So we'll see. Good. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Matthews. I appreciate it. It's nice to see you. And yeah, enjoy and take care. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Charles Matthews. If you liked our conversation and want to find out more about his work, go buy his books. As always, there's links in the description. Also check out his recommended work, The Innocence of Pontius Pilate by David Lloyd Dusenberry. There's a link for that below as well. Our theme music is Oh Great Light by Jess Ray, and I'm your host, Joshua Blanchard. As always, thank you for listening.